It's Monday, July the 6th, playing Fantasy Quarantine House. It's a game Scott made up. Shalal Walker is here. We learn about heritage baking. Welcome to Eat It, Virginia. Hello and welcome to Eat It, Virginia. My name is Scott Wise and I'm joined as always by my friend, my friend, Roby Martin. Roby, we're still Zooming. We are still Zooming. I texted you this weekend and I said, are you ready for like a face-to-face socially distanced recording session? And you texted back. You said, yes, how about noon? We can do it outside. But I could tell, I could tell in your text that you were not ready for it. So I gave you a, a second chance and I said, uh, and I I'm, ha- didn't I'm, take I'm it. happy to do Zoom if you want to. And you're like, Zoom is perfect. So you, know, <laughs> you, can, be, you can be honest with me. Like we're, I think we are at that level. You don't have to... Is that what this is? Honesty code things. Oh. Yeah, I mean, just tell me you're not, not sure. seeing me in person. That's fine. No, the real thing is I really wouldn't mind seeing you in person, but I just haven't taken a shower. Oh, well, I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate your honesty there. Maybe go you're back welcome. to lying to me. Um, okay, I'm very clean. <laughs> I had a uh, I had a Roby Martin experience this week that I want to share with you. I don't know what that means. I'm going to tell you. And it's going to, did, did you fall down gracefully in a yoga pose? Uh, Somebody no. recognize sure your could, voice in a dressing room? I'm not sure I could get in a yoga pose. I'm not sure I could do that. But I think I'm officially an Instagram influencer. Officially. Ooh, tell me about officially. it. Officially. I know you've been there for a while now, but this is, might be I'm one of my first. Influencer. Oh, stop it. I think this is one of my first experiences where I saw the direct correlation of something I posted on Instagram to an action that someone else took. Are you ready? Okay, yeah, walk me through it. Because right. this is, I would love the A, B, of C's of Instagram influencing. <laughs> well, I think you do a very good job at it. You influence me. I, I, see where, I see what you're up to, going pe- peach picking. I want to go peach picking now. Oh, dude, it's hot. <laughs> <laughs> Recently, one of my coworkers at Channel 6, Wayne Koval, did a story about the Richlands Creamery, which is down near the Dinwiddie Nottaway line. It's very close to where I grew up. Is that right? Oh, I should have done the whole Roby Martin tour. It's freaking dang delicious. And you could have picked peaches. You were really close to that too. Uh, next time. So anyway, so I post. You, you clearly didn't reach out to me. I could have given you a pile of stuff you could have done. Okay, so, keep going. Let's so talk about this. I post on Instagram something, you know, not very clever about how we've reached that level of quarantine where we're driving an hour and a half out of our way to get a milkshake, which is basically what we did. This, this Richland's Dairy, this Richland's Creamery, you know, they serve ice cream and milkshakes and light lunch fare, barbecue sandwiches, hot dogs, things like that. So I posted on Instagram and I get two or three or four, which is a lot for me, uh, responses. Oh, what, what is People start talking to Scott. Yeah. Dog on it already. Tell right. him what to do. What is this? Like, what, where are you? What are you doing? So I explained to him. The next day, I get a, a text from one of my friends who took her son the two-hour drive to get a milkshake. So I'm just saying like, I posted a milkshake, not even a picture of a milkshake, just this, this, the story, and then it happened. It happened for me. Scott would like ice cream at the house, Richland Dairy. So that if would be nice. So if you to be hanging about in Richmond and want to bring him some ice cream, he's happy to take it. Richland Dairy, the best milkshake to drive two hours for. Love it, love it, love it, love it. I'm thankful that people like my opinion, or maybe they don't like my opinion. They just want to hear it, which I, I don't know what it is, but I get loads and loads of thoughts 
on what restaurants are doing right and doing wrong. I got them before what's going on now from a pandemic, and now I get them currently. Like reviews on restaurants and cold French fries or medium right. well steak or not enough ice in a glass or this person is this way. I that, that, have, that keeps you up at night with your Instagram messages, I know. Everyone, everybody wants to know the, the coldest ice in town. Uh, I, yeah, that's what it is. Like there's not enough ice because it's hot and everybody's eating outside and they, they're mad. I don't, I mean, it sounds like ridiculous with what's going on. And so I, I've stopped responding or actually I'm just responding with a capital N and capital O. In all of this, like, I mean, I'm, I'm, no joke, I probably have 150 messages. Um, I'll scroll through them in a second, but I'm getting ready to read you this one that was sent to me. Uh-oh. Yes, because I want this thought from you because I struggle. I have not answered it because I don't really, I know what I want to say, but I don't know if it's. This, if is, a family like friendly, this is a family-friendly podcast, just so you know. Okay. Well, I only I have three, like, three bleeps per podcast is the limit. <laughs> FCC, <laughs> send me a note. This, Scott, this is serious. I need I you understand. to take me seriously. Uh, okay. okay. Yeah, um, I know you don't take me seriously. But it's I take fine. you seriously, but I don't okay. want to. So from, you can believe this name, but it's from Kiki Venable. I do have a serious question about this. She's talking about my, I'm not going to answer your complaints on restaurant stuff anymore question, because I've been having a real internal struggle. Restaurants are opening and bringing back staff. Staff that don't have customers don't get paid enough. Staff that have customers are at risk. It feels like restaurants want people back. I'm afraid to go out, but I also don't want people to get screwed who work in restaurants. I would love to hear perspectives from industry people on what is a really tough topic. Ideally, COVID relief would postpone all openings and protect workers, but since that isn't happening, what do I do that is best for everyone? My opinion hasn't really changed much since March or April. I mean, I'm still not going... I'm trying to think back, make sure I'm telling the truth here. I'm still not eating inside restaurants. Um, I don't really feel, I don't know if comfortable is the right word. I just don't really feel it's necessary yet. Um, you know, I want to support my friends in the industry. I'm still doing takeout uh, on occasion, less than I was doing probably when uh, this first started and it felt like very urgent to help people. Uh, in the industry. And I still feel that urgency is obviously still there for the people that are busting their butts every day trying to keep their, their livelihoods afloat. But um, I don't know if it's like burnout or if it's just everyone's like just mentally and, and physically and emotionally exhausted with what's been happening in our, in our lives for the last, shoot, what is it now? Three, four months. So no, I'm, I, I, I think it's just personal choices. I've seen plenty of people, plenty of my friends uh, on social media that are going out to restaurants and hopefully they're being safe and hopefully the restaurants are being safe. But I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer that you can like just throw down on everybody who's asking that question. I think it's just about personal choice and personal taste. Where do you stand on the issue? I really grapple with this because I do not think that going, me, Roby, who made a living off of writing about restaurants and eating in them and working in them and all of those things. I just don't think going out to eat is worth risking your life and equally as important, the server, the restaurateur, anybody's life. I know people need to make a living. 
And I'm not downplaying that at all. I'm not, I'm not, I get it. You need to make a living Scott and I need to make a living and everybody needs to make a living. But like is getting the best fried chicken sandwich worth a hospital stay? (laughs) I guess is the question I have for you. Okay. So let's take this a little bit further because here comes my other question for you. Okay. So I keep pretty close to the restaurant news because they're my friends and I like to know what's going on, even though I'm not spending a lot of time in my restaurant. What if you find out that a restaurant has had employees test positive? Are you asking me as a journalist? Are you asking me as a consumer? Are you asking me as a citizen? What are you asking me as? Let's let's split it up into those three categories. As a journalist, what do you do? Yeah. So if you find out. Yeah. So initially when COVID first became a thing in Richmond and in the country, we were getting email from big companies, small companies. Hey, we had someone test positive. Hey, we shut down for a day. Hey, we've cleaned things up. We're out of an abundance of caution. We are XYZ. Um, And for me, that felt kind of weird because for me, it always seemed like it's one of those things that this this thing is going to be everywhere. Like it's not going to be just this nursing home or just this target on whatever road or just this you know, Kroger or Publix or whatever, like it was going to be everywhere. And for us to single out this one business because they could, because they told us this was happening, it always felt kind of weird. Now we did it like as the news organization, we did it. We would report, you know, the Walmart on XYZ had one person test positive um, and they're taking care of it or the grocery store or the restaurant. But as time has gone on, you know, that's become less and less. We're getting email from, from viewers that are asking us, Hey, we heard that you know four people on the assembly line at this company tested positive, and they're not doing anything about it. What can you do? We can ask questions of these companies, but they don't have to tell us. And at that point, it's like, why are we singling out the companies that are doing the right thing by telling us, and right, and not reporting the ones that possibly aren't doing the right thing by not telling us? To get back to your question, if I were to find out that a restaurant in town had a person that tested positive. <laughs> For, for the virus, like if they, if they put it on their social media and they're putting it out there, I would feel more comfortable reporting it than just like singling out this one restaurant because I'm quite positive that m- many restaurants are having sure. this issue and, and I would not necessarily feel comfortable or calling out or reporting this one place. Um, as a consumer, I mean, it would be nice to know, but again, I'm kind of going into everything that I do every choice that I make, I'm kind of going in under the assumption that somebody in this grocery store, somebody in this you know, superstore, somebody is going to either have it or have been in contact with someone that's had it. So, I mean, I grocery shop. I, I'm still going into grocery stores. Some of the stores that I go into, I know, like they've told us they, they've had employees that have had it. Now, if there's a problem, one of my friends is a reporter out in Arizona, and she did a story last week about a bar in Arizona who had employees actively sick with COVID, exhibiting symptoms, who are still serving drinks and still serving food and being very irresponsible with it. If something like that were to surface, that's a different story. Like, uh, why is this on your mind? Is something, is I just, something you know, happen? there's just like, oh, no, there's just a bunch of weighted questions that, you know, that you sit with and you want, you, I'm, I'm 
And from where I sit, I wish that people were either a more responsible about what they were doing and b cared about people more. Sure. And that goes towards teachers too. I, I don't know. I feel like there's a bulk of individuals that I know that are trying to be hypersensitive to individuals that are in restaurants or teachers or however that works. And then there's like a select bunch that are just, I don't know, willy nilly. Like it's freaking partying like it's 1999 and I just cannot figure out I don't understand the disconnect and maybe it's because like I am an old person and old people now are rule followers or I don't know I mean that's a sweeping generalization for no apparent reason except for me I mean I'm like okay I'll follow the rules because like that's what they're telling me to do but right. I don't know that's where I am so it is what it is and I just wanted your opinion and yeah, I think sure. that other people I think I, I know I'm not the only one grappling with this and sure. looking at my Facebook going, I'd like to be at the beach right now. I mean, I'm sure you are too, but I, I mean, 4,000 people in Roanoke went to Myrtle beach apparently and came back testing yeah. positive. And they asked everybody that I mean, went to Myrtle 4, beach to, yeah, sure. They went, they asked everybody that went to Myrtle beach to self quarantine. And so if that ever happened, we'll, you know, we'll never know. Of course it didn't. Yeah. I mean, probably three people. I probably know them self quarantined because we're all rule followers and the rest of them were like, well, here we are. I don't know. Anyway. So I want to play a game with you, Roby. Uh, are you up for a game? I guess I am. Sure. Are you familiar with fantasy football? Absolutely not. Okay. So fantasy football is a game that I play and many others play where you create is it like dungeons and dragons, but you have a ball made of pigskin. Exactly. No, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not exactly. That's not at all what it's like. So basically you draft a team, Are a there roster. Unicorns? I'm telling you what it is. Stop interrupting <laughs> me. Um, you draft a team of players, a quarterback or running back, a wide receiver, whatever. And, okay. and, uh, you can choose your players from any team in the league. I want to play a version of fantasy football with you right now. It's called fantasy quarantine. Okay. Okay. And these are the rules. I think we've done almost 30 podcasts at this point. Usually we've okay. interviewed one person per podcast for like a main interview. I want you to create, to draft your, your fantasy quarantine house. You can choose four other people that we've interviewed for our podcast to live with you in this quarantine house for an undetermined amount of time. It could be a year, it could be the next 10 years, forever as long as, as this COVID uh, quarantine is going to last. And I want the reasons why you're choosing those people in your house. Okay. Now, 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 we can go back and forth. So like if we, both, if, we, if we both pick the same person, only one of us can have that person. And then I want the, oh. listen, then I want the listeners to choose the best quarantine house between your house or my house. Oh, how does that sound? Okay. Who wins in their quarantine? Choices? Yes. Who wins in their quarantine house? Everybody's a winner in this. I want you to know. Yeah. <laughs> if I you can only choose four, podcast, you can only choose four people. Won't choose four people. So do you want to have the first draft pick? I think you should have the first draft pick. I get the first draft pick. Yes. Your, your game. All right. Okay. That's cool. My first pick of the draft, the first pick of the 2020 fantasy quarantine house is Brittany Anderson. Brittany nice Anderson. Choice. The reasons why. 
She is strong both mentally and physically. There's going to be a lot of things we're going to have to move around this house. And I've seen her weightlifting pictures and videos of her lifting those dang weights. And I am 100% confident that she, both her muscle and her brain would be a huge compliment to my quarantine house. She's also very fun and driven. You can see the things that she's been doing with her restaurants during, uh, during the shutdown. She's, she was one of the first people to really get things going, um, trying to get back on track and, Seem to have a pretty positive attitude about it all. So Brittany Anderson's my first pick. What do you think about that? I like it. I think it's a solid poll. Okay. I do. Who's going to be your first pick? Beth Dixon. Oh, Brittany's old friend. I see what you're doing mm-hmm. here. Fighting fire with fire. Oh, yeah. Want to talk about Beth real quick and why I think that she's going to, like, take your house down? Tell me why. A, she is brilliant. B, she is a homesteader. So let's just talk about the canning, the jarring, the chickens we can grow, the plants. That's very good. C, the canning, the jarring, the plants. I mean, the cocktails, the cooking. I mean, she's the all-around primo first choice. She's a utility player. She can do it all, a little bit of everything. Oh, yep, she fits. And you know what? I, I bet you she's equally strong. I think that she. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I'm taking Brittany in a fist fight. I'm taking Brittany in a fist fight. All right, my second choice, Ronnie. You get to go next. Yeah, Ronnie Logan. Ronnie Logan. Ronnie Logan. Nice. Ronnie from Ronnie's Original. Um, Interesting. It's the leadership qualities that he has. I mean, he runs a family business, a legitimate family business, and I feel like in our quarantine house, there's going to be a lot of like squabbling, a lot of you know, after a few weeks or months together, we're going to need someone to have that. That, that quiet, calm, leadership, family, like a father figure kind of voice who's going to like bring us all back together and, and focus it on, on love and friendship. His positive attitude and his inspirational words, I think, would be very, very helpful during this, during this time. Ronnie Logan from Ronnie's Original Barbecue. Nice, nice. All right, Mike Lindsay. Mike Lindsay, our first yes. guest ever. Yep. What is it yep. about Mike? I feel like we're going to need somebody who can add the exact same type of situation that you're saying Ronnie can. Okay. I feel like he's a master. I think that he can lead. I think also I'm going to need someone who can help me break down animals if we have to, because, you know, Beth is going to be making cocktails probably for us. So, um, she, I mean, she could break down animals, I'm sure. But, like, we're gonna, I'm going to need someone with that uplifting spirit. Also, I don't know if you've ever seen Mike Lindsay in public, but he can pivot like nobody I know. He's very fast on his feet. My third choice, Joey Dara from Oh, yes. 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 Joey. Old Tesla. Yeah. For those of you guys who don't know, is like a mechanical, not like a, he is a mechanical engineer. Before he started brewing beer in Scott's Edition, a mechanical engineer who helped design Tesla. So I'm... If I'm using the Gilligan's Island theory of who you're going to be trapped on an island with, I think Joey's the professor. Like he's going to whip up some sort of ah. contraption in my quarantine house to make life a little easier. You know, maybe one of those Rube Goldberg-esque, you know, the egg comes out of the chicken and rolls like Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Are you with me on this? Do you know what I'm talking about? I do know yeah. what you're talking I think about. Joey's gonna, I think Joey's going to uh, be a great asset to my house. And he can brew beer. Yes, which is, which is great. Which is almost as important as being a, a mechanical engineer. All right, I'm throwing a um, curveball at you. Okay. I'm taking the full cast of the Jasper. 
Oh, uh, we have to we have to ask the judges about that. I think that you said a guest, and they all came on at once. And I don't know who's judging this, but want to talk about engineers? There you have it. So, I've got three engineers right there, all very creative. Wouldn't be surprised if my house comes up with a vaccine. You have four bartenders in your house right now. <laughs> yeah, think about the concoctions. You want to know the best house right now? Yes, right here. I'm going to let you pick your fourth now because I want my fourth to be last. Oh, so I don't understand these rules. Is this how it works in your, in your unicorn picture? My game, game, my rules. Um, I would like Josh Barbin. From the Diamond. Why Josh? Mm-hmm. I just think that he would be a nice, calming, quiet, wise addition. Right. I just feel like he's like when you're talking to him, it's almost like doing yoga. Josh Barbin is like doing yoga. I like that. Yep. And we, you just need some level, thoughtful, you know, take some space for yourself types. And that's my type. I like your house, Roby. If I was allowed to come visit, I would. But I, think my, brilliant. I think my house is better. I have the fourth person is going to be Shola Walker. Whoa, yes. The farmer and the baker because... Everybody knows I have a soft spot for sweets and she can deliver in that regard. Oh, and true. she's a farmer. So much like Beth, right. who, much like Beth who can uh, help your house grow and sustain, Shola is going to be my grower and sustainer. Oh, good gosh. Your house is nice. Man, these are, this is, these are some solid houses. Can we just move next door to each other? That's a smart idea. That's a very smart idea. So, Team Roby, Team Scott, let us know which house you'd rather live in. There is no wrong answer. Except for Team Roby. That's the wrong answer. <laughs> yeah, you wait till my team hears you say that. You're never getting a drink at the Jasper again. I'm glad to be interviewed Shaw this summer because otherwise she couldn't be in my house. Shalaw is a heritage baker. She is the Shalon Farms cook in residence. She is in just incredible all around to listen to. I mean, I learned so much during this interview. I don't know about you, Scott, but I just learned a ton. I thought this was like a really fun informational segment. Segment? Interview? Sure. Interview. Let's roll it. Wow. Okay. So I actually don't, you, I didn't realize that you were cooking at Shalom Farm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd, I'd love for you to walk me through that. Well, I mean, first, I'd, I mean, you're like one of the most amazing bakers in Richmond. And I'm, I like you, you fly so far under the radar, which is just also very cool because you kind of have to know where you are to get all the amazing bakes. But how did you get into what you were doing? So um, my food journey actually began at WPA. So my first career was in performing arts and I did that for like 10 years. And then I was getting older and (laughs) um, I got to the place where I was like, okay, I don't know if my bones can handle music theater anymore, but I also couldn't make the choice for myself to give it up. So I just kind of let life decide. And I, all through college, when I went to school in Connecticut for performing arts, I like had Sunday dinners with my classmates. And so I've always loved food, always been interested, but have never taken a class. Well, I have since, but at the time had not taken a class or any formal training. So anyway, um, 
the year that was like the, the year I felt like I needed to decide, I was almost 30 and um, seven of my friends asked me, that was not seven fingers, seven, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, seven of my friends asked me to make their wedding cakes and I did. And so I was like, all right, well, I guess life has decided. So I randomly was driving down the street one day and saw this little place called House of Homemade. And I applied for a job there. And unfortunately, House of Homemade closed fairly quickly, but WPA came in to that same space. And so I like put my application in again and I was like, hey, I don't have any formal training, but I really love to bake and just like had some pictures of things I had baked before and they hired me. I was the first employee. And so that is where it started for me. And I just so happened because Kendra and at the time, Kendra and David, um, Kendra Merton and David War were business partners. I became friends with Kendra who I knew in name and had like looked her up and all the cool stuff that she was doing. And then she was like, now my supervisor, which I was like, this is nuts. <laughs> um, and then we actually became friends. And she said to me one day, she said, you should think about opening your own restaurant. And I was like, Kendra, that's crazy. And she was like, why? And I said, because I've never actually worked in a restaurant. I've only worked in bakeries. So anyway, she asked me if I wanted to work in a restaurant, to which I said, Yes. So I interned at Juleps, which is a crazy transition to go from a bakery to fine dining. Um, and I interned under Randall Detzer, who is really tough, which is why I wanted to work under him, because I was like, if I'm going to do a crazy transition like this, I need to work with somebody who's like a stickler. When you say crazy tough, what do you mean exactly by that? Randy plays no games, none. Like he, even though the customers cannot see inside of his kitchen, you could lick any object in the kitchen and it would be totally clean because he just has such high standards and he never wants you to try to compromise the kind of food that you give to the customer for, for anything else. He's just, he's very uncompromising on so many levels. And it was one of the reasons I chose him because she sent me like bios of a couple of different chefs and was like, Hey, this is what they do. And I chose him because I saw an interview that he did where he was just very open and honest about the fact that like, yeah, I don't think you should ever compromise. You shouldn't have to compromise. You shouldn't compromise as a chef in this food industry. And so I was like, yes, this one, I want to work with this guy. Um, so I did. I interned for a year and then I actually worked at Juleps. I worked the line. I switched from being a baker to working the line. Full disclosure, I was not a great line cook. Um, because, did Randy let you know about it? Sorry? Did Randy let you know about it? He So he let me try and he let me try and I got better. I mean, I wasn't like a complete dud, but I got better but he made sure I knew like, these are the things you can work on. <laughs> <laughs> um, what were some so of the things that, what were some of the things that were most challenging in that environment? 
So for me, I don't move fast. And the reason I don't move fast is because I'm actually a very cautious person in general, just like in life and in general. And in order for you to be a good line cook, you have to be able to move fast, right? And you also have to be able to take whatever is thrown at you. That is not the mind of a baker. Like when you walk into a bakery, you know how many things you have to make, you know when they have to cool, you know when they have to be packaged. Like it's your list is already set for the day. And I'm that kind of person. Like I love to walk in and know what's going to happen. Um, but I did it. I worked the line for a couple years. And also just like being in restaurants, I just loved to see people's passion, literally. Like you're working with knives and fire and curse words and, you know, like all kinds of drama and alcohol. And it's just like you get to see people in their element and you get to see other line cooks and what they're very particular about, like people are particular about their knives or what kind of salt, and, you know, like all this kind of stuff. And it was just so fascinating to me that I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> so I did it for a couple years, but there came a point where, you know, like I had to be real with myself and I was just like, no girl, you're a baker. Like you can cook in your house and maybe in a cafe, in a small environment, but a line cook is a whole other beast, right? Um, and I had worked at a couple different places by the time I had gotten to this particular spot, and I had another friend, Chef Ellie Bosch, who like sat me down one day and was like, girl, you're a baker. And so I like <laughs> cried, you know, like cried and all this other kind of stuff. Well, anyway, um, Sometime down the road, I ended up working at a bakery again. So I went back to baking and I worked at Nettie's Naturally again with another baker who was, she was a stickler and I loved it. I, I loved the people who pushed me the most. Randall Detzer, Ellie Bosch, Lynette Paquita, they were very stringent in how they wanted things to be done. And their food is beautiful and brilliant and full of life. And so I loved it. I loved it a lot. Um, but Lynette was also doing something that's very close to my heart. She was a baker who was paying very close attention to people's health. And um, so I worked at Nettie's for a year. And then unfortunately, the situation happened where she being a native of South Africa, she went overseas to visit her sister in Switzerland and was not allowed to come back to the United States. I remember that happening in the news. I remember reading articles about that. That that made local headlines. It did, yeah. So the the thing that kind of like sucks about the whole situation is I don't know that she was ever given a real answer for why they wouldn't allow her back into the United States because Lynette is not the type of person to have any of her affairs out of order. She was very orderly. She had all of her proper documents. Everything was, you know, above above the standard um so that was terrible it was terrible but that is the way in which my sisters and i were able to kind of step into the bakery so we stepped into the bakery and things were going well for a little while um there were a lot of areas that we learned to grow from <laughs> in that 
in that process. The bakery you're referring to is Mahogany Sweets, correct? Yes, okay. that is that is the bakery that I owned with my two sisters, uh, wonderful businesswomen. But it was it was tough. It was very tough because I didn't realize how much of business requires you to be a performer. Um, because you you not only have to like cook the food, but you go to these events and people want to talk to you and they want to know your opinions and your thoughts and what you're working on, what inspires you. And it was it was more than I thought it was going to be. Um, so at one point we decided to transition how the bakery was going to operate, and we started working it as a wholesale space and so we were in grocery stores and other cafes and other uh, restaurants and because it was wholesale and I didn't have to be there as much I always wanted to learn more about farming and I had more time in like the mornings and so I was like oh well you know what I'll reach out to my friend Dominic because I've known Dominic forever and see if I can volunteer slash work on the farm. And so I texted him and I was like, hey, do you guys need anybody to work on the farm? And then some time went by and then Dominic texted me back and he was like, have you ever taught cooking classes? And I was like, <laughs> I have not, but that sounds <laughs> lovely. So then I started teaching cooking classes at Shalom. Yeah. So Dom was my neighbor when I um was my first house I bought in Carytown. He lives two doors down from me. He mm -hmm. is the he's a good dude. He is he's such a good guy, and I can totally see him texting you and being like, "You can do this. Here's some Swiss chard. Go to it." Yes. And because we had known each other for so long, it was kind of like he knew the work that I was doing. I knew the work that he was doing. And he was like, hey, I think these things could work out together. So that's how it happened. I have a question. How about many classes do you teach? Sorry, Scott. Yeah. Um, so normally I would teach three to four classes in a week um, for 12-week sessions. And depending on where we pick up in that in that in the season or that section of the season, um, we can have one or more cohorts. So like, for example, if we have a class that starts in June, which is normally when the growing season starts for Shalom or the harvesting season starts for Shalom, um, they would run between June and August. And then in the summer, we normally take a kind of programs break in mid to late August. And then we have a second cohort that begins from September through Thanksgiving. And what are some of the things that you're teaching specifically? So a lot of the classes are connected to other partners that deal directly with healthcare. So Bon Secours, Health Brigade, um, Virginia Home for Boys and Girls, all groups that are trying to either provide people with health skills um, ways to manage diabetes or other health conditions or people who are trying to obtain life skills. So like, for example, Virginia Home for Boys and Girls, they were young adults who were aging out of the foster care system, wanted to 
get some more life skills, wanted to know how to cook so that they can maintain a healthy life for themselves. Yeah. What I'm hearing from you and what I read about you before we spoke today is that you have a, um, put a big em emphasis on community and, and making an impact in your community, in the community at large. Where does that come from, that, that desire to, to help others? So I actually come from a large family on both sides. My father is one of seven children and my mother is one of 19. And um, 19, like one nine, like one nine. Yeah, that's a big family. <laughs> yep. So I'm very, very comfortable and used to being amongst a bunch of people. I'm also an extrovert. And so for a long time, my community was pretty much my family on both sides. And just going to different family events, whether it's holidays or birthdays or any kind of celebration, and we were always cooking. We were always cooking. We were always eating. It was always a part of the kind of like language amongst our family. And, you know, being African-American, my parents put a lot of time and effort into letting me and my siblings know at a very young age being black is wonderful. These are all the ways in which being black is wonderful. And they did it in religion. They did it in the sciences and arts and all different arenas. And so, you know, like I grew up like, hey, this is pretty cool. But my parents also made me aware these are the ways in which being black can be interpreted. And these are the ways in which being black can be a struggle. And so because of that, I watched my parents become activists. Like my mom has been doing racial justice work for as long as I've been alive. Um, and so those were ways in which my parents were not only affecting the community of our family, but also affecting our community at large, being you know African-American. And so it's just always been important to me. And there are times where I'm like, yeah, I don't. I don't think I want to do this anymore, <laughs> but there, it's just in my, it's in my soul. And so I just really can't, I can't turn that off. I just can't say no. Even if I get tired or I want to take a break, my heart won't let me. Is your mom still in racial justice work? She's a minister. Did I read that? Both of my parents are ministers and my mother is still in racial justice work. She actually just moved to Arizona last year though. So yeah. To retire or to continue her work out there or the weather she likes better? I mean, all of those things would be amazing. But Yeah. So my mother is technically retired, but <laughs> my, my parents don't really understand what retirement means, which I think is great. Um, both of my parents are actually technically retired. But yeah, so she went to Arizona to retire. She also made a promise to my niece that when she had her first child, she would help her take care of the baby. And so my niece lives in Arizona. And when she was pregnant, she called my mom and said, hey, ma, I mean, hey, Mima, um, we're going to have a baby girl. And so my mom was like, all right, let me get my affairs in order. And she moved to Arizona. But naturally, she joined a church. She started doing work again. You know, it's just it's just one of those things.
you mentioned that you went to college in Connecticut. Uh, did you grow up in Richmond or Virginia, or where, where, where was your, your, your early years spent? Yes, yeah, so I grew up in Richmond. I actually grew up, which seems to be a shock to some people, I grew up in Southside. We moved around a bit, but um, that's where I was born. I was born in Southside. And I think, I'm not sure how young I was, but we moved to the Verina-ish area when I was really young. So a lot of my childhood was in like Verina, Henrico County. And then um, when I was 17 or 16, we moved back to the city. And I kind of have been here ever since. So if your parents have been um, community activists and, and fighting the fight their whole lives, and you've been in Richmond essentially your whole life, how, how are you reacting or, or how is what you're seeing happening in the last few weeks, in the last few days, how, is that, uh, how are you processing all that, all of this, current, the current events? Yeah, that's a good question because I've been asking myself how I'm <laughs> processing all of this. I think it's really big and complex and it's something that you can't just answer one way, right? So as a baker, as a cook, I question myself about what does your career have to do with any of this? And the way I answer that question for myself is I spend a lot of time and energy being dedicated to the history, particularly of black women, black chefs, black pastry chefs, black cooks who have come up in the South. And my favorite of them all happens to be Edna Lewis because she was right here in Virginia. Um, and so the work that I do, the recipes that I get to look up the history that I get to study is, is relevant to this struggle, particularly because African-Americans have always used food as a form of protest. Um, and after, so just to kind of go back to finish this question, we closed Mahogany Suites officially because there were a lot of transition pieces um, but also in the wake of the coronavirus, we just didn't, we just didn't think it was possible for us to bounce back from that. So we had to close the bakery and that was kind of hard. But one of the things that it allowed me to do was it allowed me to step back and say, what is most important for me to do with my career? And so I had previously been studying African-American women in the South, but now I get to dive deeper into that history and that information. And so I get to look up recipes. I get to try out recipes at home from, you know, 1867, or I get to find out information about the um, Montana whiskey women and how one of them was African-American, you know, like I get to do all of this research and I get to dig further into the work that I want to be my legacy because I want to continue to process that history aloud with other people as far as food history and how African-American women have always been present. The other way in which I am processing the events that are happening is 
to lend my voice. So I am not actually a fan of, <laughs> this is going to sound crazy, but I'm actually not a fan of social media because I feel like it requires so much energy of a person. You have to edit the photo. You have to take the photos. You have to edit the photos. You have to make a caption and their hashtags. And I'm secretly a hundred, which is why I'm a good baker. So it took me a while to figure out like what hashtags do I put on this thing? I don't know. But um, because I have social media platforms, I try to be very intentional about these are the ways that we can be active, that we can use our presence, that we can use our skills to help protesters to help our community to help people that look like us or don't look like us in this time and in this space um so i try to be very intentional about that instead of just you know taking pictures of my breakfast which i also do <laughs> but um yeah you mentioned i take pictures of my breakfast i'm a breakfast picture taker you know sometimes it's just good <laughs> You, you, sometimes it's not though <laughs> you mentioned food as a form of protest and i must i must plead ignorance on on that statement um do you have a moment just to to educate me what that what that means food certainly so freetown where Edna lewis and her family grew up which is now a part of orange county i believe um was founded by freed slaves and the intention, the lifeblood that, that breathed into that community is self-sufficiency. And so most of, and very proudly, like I, I get the opportunity and I still like am flabbergasted that I get to do this, but I talked to Ruth Lewis Smith, who is Edna Lewis' and, sister. And sister. Yes. Oh, so cool. So I get to talk to her on the phone. She like talks to me and I'm like, I'm just like a little, little person and she, she's so great. Um, but I get to talk to her and she talks to me about what it meant to grow up in Freetown where the only time they went to the grocery store was to get like salt and pepper um, and sugar, you know, like things like that. But everything else they pretty much raised or they grew and they cooked and they canned and they, you know, preserved or smoked all of these things. And so self-sufficiency is a form of protest, right? So like if you don't have to depend on someone else for your livelihood and your sustenance, that is a form of protest. It's not, it's not necessarily an aggressive form of protest, but it is still a form of protest. Other ways in which African-Americans have used food as protests. Um, Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, it's like she started a co-op. And part of the reason she started the co-op was because she felt like Black people should be able to experience land ownership or at least um, a communal space of land, right? So that they can grow their own food. They can, again, be self-sufficient they can sustain their health, they can be engaged with the earth. Um, other ways in which we have used food as protests, Georgia Gilmore. Georgia Gilmore created an, enti an entire group 
called um, Nowhere was the name of the group, right? So, and the reason she created a group called Nowhere was because they, different women, different black women would get together and they would cook meals or they would cook um, baked goods and they would sell them. And so if a police officer ever asked them, where's this money going? They would say, oh, it's going nowhere. You know, it's going to nowhere. Because that way they technically weren't lying, but I mean, like a little bit lying. <laughs> so she created this group and they collected, they cooked the food and they collected the money and then they would take that money to Martin Luther King and other activists and support the civil rights movement, right? And yeah, there's just there just been several examples throughout history where black women and black men as well, I don't want to exclude black men, have used food as a form of protest. And I do think I'm very fond of the idea of people reconnecting to the earth and understanding where they fit in in this story of self-sufficiency because everyone doesn't want to be a farmer, right? But if you know someone who is a farmer and you have something you can barter, trade, have a relationship with that person, buy things from them and then whatever skills you have, they can support your skills. Um, then there's this level of community and self-sufficiency so that you don't have to depend on other people and larger corporations for your life. Oh, I love it. I feel, I feel like um, this whole, I need to read more on this, the, the whole nowhere, because it just sounds like, it just sounds amazing. Yeah. Also kind of sounds like what's, I mean, I, I, were you part of the um, Baker Union that they they got together? Bakers um, Against Racism? Yes. Yeah. Yep. It, I mean, I, it, that sounds, it sounds like history is repeating itself, because I feel like that's very similar um well, I don't know. If it's not a similar group, but um, they, you, I, don't, I haven't, I haven't seen any of the baked goods. But I saw that um, there's like what nine, ten of you all. Yeah, there's there's a good number of bakers, and the money is also one of the organizations. I can't name them all, but one of the organizations which I think is really great that the proceeds or some of the proceeds are going to is the Food Justice Alliance which has been, they have been putting in work for a very long time to try to help communities of color know where they, their voice is important and matters in the food systems and the food chain and how they can engage, excuse me, how they can engage with our food systems in the most efficient, and best way for them, regardless of where they fall along this socioeconomic spectrum. That's a fantastic. So you call yourself a heritage baker, but you also are very connected to health. Yeah. What made you decide that that was something that you were gonna research? Like, cause oh. you do lots of vegan, lots of gluten-free, lots of sugar-free. I believe at one point in time you and I talked about how you could use apple sugar because you wanted to stay within some of the Virgi the native Virginia plants. Yeah. Yep. To sweeten things. Yeah. Cool stuff. So one of the reasons health has always been important to me is I started performing. I started dancing when I was a really young girl, and when you are in ballet, they 
in a in a very different way <laughs> in a very different way they talk to you about what you should be eating right so i became very conscious of what i was eating what i should be eating all those sorts of things at a very young age but i was also aware that i'm southern so collard greens macaroni and cheese candy yams all those things have been a part of my life but my mother put a lot of time and effort into introducing my father as well. Cause my father cooks also, let me not say just my mom in case he hears this. <laughs> um, so both of my parents put a lot of time into making us aware of different styles of food, different preparations of food. My father hunted for a very long time. So for a while in my childhood, our Thanksgiving Turkey, he shot. Right. So he shot the turkey. He dragged that thing up on this like wooden table in the backyard when we lived in the country and would skin it and clean it. And as a little girl, I was like, this is gross. But, you know, like I still saw <laughs> the process and we would go down to our cousin's house to get tomatoes and corn and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I was very aware of like, okay, what of the many different styles and preparations of food that I am consuming, what is best for my body? Because as a dancer, I have to continue to think about what's best for my body. So that has always been with me um, in life. And then it was probably in high school when I made the connection between what you eat and, and your health outcomes. And so I was like, oh, so if I eat a lot of rich foods and I don't counter that with exercise and I, you know, I'm not cognizant or not aware of how many greens I'm intaking, all of these things, it can negatively affect my health. So I started to make those connections. And as a teenager, I was very spicy in my attitude. <laughs> and so I like became a vegetarian in high school. And I just thought I was so fancy because I was like, yes, I'm taking a stand. Um, but, you know, like I just started to make all of these decisions and health choices. And I, I started to dig in at a very young age. And my mom noticed and she both my parents supported me my father was still like girl i'm gonna eat these chitlins but my mom was like yeah i support you i support you and your decisions i support you and what you wanted to do what you want to do and so it just got deeper and deeper and deeper for me over time and again like the the cultural piece got pulled in and i noticed that health disparities among people of color was outrageous and so I was like how, how do all of these pieces fit together meanwhile I dream in cake you know I dream in cookies I will hear a song and it will make me want to bake and I could not reconcile those things I couldn't reconcile the fact that I want to make chocolate cake but I also want to be healthy and so it was a struggle for me for a while and it wasn't until I got to the section of my cooking journey with Lynette, working at um, Nettie's Naturally, 
where I finally put the pieces together of like, oh, I can actually bake and I can also support people's health. So those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. They can actually work together. And then the more I cooked and, you know, getting into savory food, it's not as quite as complicated to merge health and savory food as it is with health and dessert. So my experience just opened up a world of like, oh, there are options. There are actually options and there are things in nature that you can use to support whatever your your health needs are. And then somewhere along the way, my doctor told me, yeah, so you should probably stop eating wheat. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. I'm a baker. What do you mean stop <laughs> Um, and so then the the gluten free journey became my own part of my own story and yeah that's how that worked together. Stop eating wheat. Mm, I don't know. That is, that had to be tough. I don't think I could do it. <laughs> so as we wrap this up, I'm going to ask you to give us and everybody listening some baking tips. I'm a cruddy cruddy baker because it's very specific and you have to be, as you said, and I'm glad that you are cautious and stringent and just very direct in all of those things. So what are some good tips for bad bakers like Roby? Oh, good tips. Um, I would say make sure you always have good flour. That is very important. And I think some people don't realize quite how important it is um, because good things start with good ingredients, right? I am a big fan of King Author. Like if you want a, a flower that you can just go to the grocery store and buy, I am a big fan of King Author. And I think King Author, not only do I support them because they're like a B corporation and they're unbromated, unbleached, all the things that I love, um, but they're all-purpose flour, which is very, you know, regular. People have access to it. It's just good. It's just good flour, and you don't, you don't have to do too many adjustments. Also, if you are on the fancier side, Sub Rosa does sell flour. And it is, I'm a fancy flower. I'm totally yes. for fancy flower. It is good flour. They are a wonderful bakery. I just started eating wheat again for the first time in like nine years. And I was like, I'm going to Sub Rosa. And so I get flour from Sub Rosa. I also have King Arthur in my house. So um, start with good flour. Also, check the expiration date on your baking soda and baking powder. <laughs> Because people will keep them for a long time. And that is okay if you need to clean your bathtub. But if you want to, <laughs> if you want to bake a thing, make sure your baking soda and baking powder have not expired. I'm, I'm telling you right now, I can guarantee that mine are probably expired. And after this is over, I'm going to walk upstairs and look <laughs> at them. And I'm sending you a photo because it's going to be like 1993. <laughs> like that's how long I'm going to have had these... I mean, they're, you know, I need to know how it looks. I mean, yours probably doesn't look like this, but mine, you know, my baking soda is in the Ziploc bag because, you know, they never put it in a container that it can be stored 
Why do they put it in the craft containers? Like I have that? no idea. I have no idea. But my, my, so my mom, obviously I grew up in a restaurant. My mom was a big cook, but not a huge baker. And the only reason we have baking soda, no, yeah, baking soda is to take the odors out of the refrigerator. Yes. You know, you put an open container in the fridge yeah. and it was supposed to remove the odors. Yes. Yeah. So I'm totally telling you mine's expired. <laughs> yep. You got to check it. Well, one last question for me, Shola. Uh, how do we, how do, how do our listeners support you and what you're doing right now? What are the best ways to, to make an impact? Uh, so that's a good question. I would say if people want to know more about like the research that I do, I often share the stories that I find, the recipes that I find on my Instagram page, which is Little Miss Mahogany. Um, but as far as supporting in other ways, I would say, please feel free to donate and or volunteer when the world reopens with the Food Justice Alliance. Um, there are other organizations. I think No Left Turn was also a part of the Bakers Against Racism, one of the organizations that we were supporting. Um, just become active in your community and also have genuine relationships with people who do not share your same history. And the reason that's important is because when we find ourselves ourselves in these times of tumultuous uh, angst and, and anger and hurt and pain, if your life and your experiences have become bound or intertwined with someone else's story, it is so much easier for you to grasp how life can be different for someone else than if you don't have any relationships that are different from your own. Like if you, if, if I, if my whole life were just surrounded by people who had a similar cultural or um, life identity and pattern and experiences that I have, I would never know how to extend myself or be a friend or be a voice or assist someone who has a different story. You're listening to Eat It Virginia with Salah Walker, Little Miss Mahogany. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Thank you. I love learning about baking. <laughs> and you, obviously. Thank you so much. This episode of Eat It Virginia. <laughs> Eat It Virginia? <laughs> this episode of Eat It Virginia. <laughs> no! Oh, God, no.